Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the functions of this program, as I envision it, is to uh, demystify or demythify. To uh, be, you know, kind of a radio myth buster. I, I say that with my, my scratchy voice uh, to indicate that I'm not quite sure about that. But let's take an example. Let's get out of the theoretical into the into the relentlessly empirical. Uh, there's a lot of talk in this in the United States right now. If there's any talk about anything except a certain president that the new British prime minister just uh, elected this week, not by the British public, but by uh, conservative party membership, whole 120,000 people elected him. Um but it's it's a wonderful democracy they have there. Anyway, the um, the the bit of opinionating about Boris Johnson that has come over to this country is well, he's kind of like our Donald Trump. Au contraire, I suggest, mon frère, he's kind of like their Jeb Bush. You remember this from Jeb Bush a few years back? Please clap. This week. After his election, Boris Johnson was delivering a speech in Manchester, England, about his plans for bringing the north of England, which has been economically dispossessed for a long time, um, up to par. We want to see this whole thing done. And I've tasked officials to accelerate their work on these plans so that we are ready to do a deal in the autumn. And feel free to applaud uh, if you... If you, if you <laughs> feel free to please clap. Hello, welcome to the show.
from the home of the homeless, Santa Monica, California. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. We've got the ultra-modern knack of getting oil from the deepest crack. So give the boys just a bit of slack and say a hearty what the frack. You know what they need to do fracking? They need water. They need sand. Again with the sand. We're hearing about sand a lot on this program. Now proponents of a sand mine outside Kanab, Utah, have won support from two local boards, but they still have a way to go before convincing many residents, particularly those who move there to retire or run tourism businesses, that their project won't harm the community, as well as undermine an an economy dependent on the beauty that surrounds them in that part of Utah. This is according to the Salt Lake Trib. Dozens of people crammed into an earlier this month meeting of the Kanab City Council in a display of intense opposition. The project would produce 700,000 tons of sand to be used for fracking 300 miles away in the Uinta Basin. City Council members ultimately did approve a, a deal to supply up to 600 acre-feet of water to the mine by a company called Southern Red Sands. But it's clear many residents will never welcome the open pit sand mine. There is plenty of groundwater available to feed the mine's processing plant while meeting the town's future needs, they say. <laughs> the uh, extractive industries may support a rural economy. Many see a sand mine as a threat to the county's well-being. It's a Trojan horse says um, one of those retirees who moved to Kanab. They will be removing the aquifer. We will lose this world-class, beautiful area that defines this wonderful place. Don't sell the water. A group called Keep Kanab Unspoiled has formed to fight the project. Placing signs all over town displaying the words frack sand with a red line through them. Right now, do you know where the western oil and gas developers get their sand from? No, not Saudi Arabia. Wisconsin. So these companies are now trying to develop new sources closer to Utah, as well as Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico's oil fields. I'm still trying to process sand from Wisconsin. Says uh, Chad Stahel, (laughs) CEO of Southern Red Sands, the company involved. This is the kind of environment we want to keep beautiful, he told the city council. While we may disagree on what it means to be environmentally sustainable or socially sustainable, I can promise you that we love this land and we love having our family on this land, unquote, till we move when we've screwed it up. Deadline Paris wastewater from oil and gas production injected deep into wells could cause earthquakes strong enough to be felt on the surface for years to come, according to new research. Wastewater from fossil fuel production has long been associated with tremors. I got one right now as producers dispose of it by injecting jets into separate wells dug below ground. The Geological Survey says that wastewater disposal from fracking is the number one cause of human-induced earthquakes in the central and eastern United States. (laughs) I wonder what the others would be. team of experts from Virginia Polytechnic now believe that the wastewater, due to its higher density, can pose an earthquake risk for years to come. 
It displaces existing groundwater stocks that keep the ground stable. Too dense, huh? Sounds like the rest of the country. Hey, oh, what the frack? Speaking of the land, the land, thank you, Tom, the, um, the, the lawsuits traipsing through the courts regarding glyphosate, better known as your old friend Roundup. Um, most recently, Alva and Alberto Piliad, a couple from Livermore up in Northern California, both got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, and allegedly, Tom, allegedly, allegedly, as a result of using Roundup, got a, a jury award of $2 billion in punitive damages, but a state trial judge cut it down in an order this week to $86.7 million. It's still, you know, that's not chump change. Includes compensatory damages for pain and suffering and medical bills. Judge Winifred Smith said uh, the Pileads had presented enough evidence to show that the weed killer probably caused them to develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She also found that Monsanto failed to warn them about the hazards of the product and tried to suppress the scientific probe of glyphosate. She denied the company a new trial on those grounds. Hundreds are suing Monsanto after the World Health Organization classified glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen in 2015. Bayer, Bayer, German company, Bayer, but we call it Bayer, which bought Monsanto, smooth move, vowed to appeal the ruling, protesting that regulators around the world have deemed glyphosate safe. They just couldn't pay off the world health... Oh, no, that's not what they claim. That's not what they claim. Is this, you might well ask, the last roundup? News of the godly, the Vatican's highest court issued a document this month, approved by Pope Francis, strongly reiterating Catholic teaching that priests may not, under any circumstances, reveal information learned inside the confessional. That was a response to mounting political and social pressure for priests to report details of the sexual abuse of minors. Those details acquired during confessions report them to authorities. The the document states any legislation aimed at forcing priests to report such information would be an unacceptable offense against the confessional seal and a violation of the church's freedom from secular power. They do like the the, uh, tax exemption, though. The Vatican said it felt it was necessary to intervene to explain the importance of the confessional seal to the church and to promote the understanding of it. A friend of mine says uh, her priest violated the confessional seal. Not regarding that kind of material. But still, a seal is a seal. Unless it's a sea line. And now, news of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, You know, the great thing about our friend the Atom is people who handle nuclear materials observe the highest standards of safety and precautionary uh, measures in their dealing with the materials because they're, they're so darn pesky. Case in point, 
from the state newspaper in South Carolina. Nuclear plant workers looked inside a huge 40-foot-long shipping container at an atomic fuel factory a couple months ago. What they discovered was a hole in the roof that had been leaking rainwater onto barrels full of radioactive trash inside. Rain onto radioactive trash, ladies and gentlemen. Water had dripped into some of the drums, onto some of the drums, raising concerns that uranium trickled out and into the soil below the Westinghouse Atomic Fuel Rod Plant, southeast of Columbia, South Carolina. This is according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which decided to do some regulating. The leaking roof is the latest problem to surface at the 50-year-old, latest problem to surface at the 50-year-old factory. Troubles have focused the spotlight on nuclear safety, says the paper. The NRC and the South Carolina Health Department are looking into the matter. Westinghouse is scrambling, scrambling to improve the way it stores barrels of nuclear garbage. Never too late, Department. We are concerned, says an inspector with the uh, NRC. We had an inspector look at this when he was out here roughly a month ago, so it's going to be part of our inspection report that's coming out. It's something we're interested in because of all the other issues going on, unquote. Those issues are a series of spills and leaks during the past three years at Westinghouse. thousand people in the, in the neighborhood work there. So you might want to look the other way when you see something like the leaks. The uh, plant leaked uranium last year through a hole in the floor. Company officials later revealed there had been leaks in 2008 and 2011 that they had not told regulators about. In 2016, the company allowed uranium to build up in an air pollution control device. That's a situation that could have exposed nuclear plant workers to a burst of radiation. And this summer, a small fire broke out in a drum full of waste. I blame the drummer. This uh, shipping container this is one of several dozen 40-foot-long containers at the plant that have been used for years to store drums full of rags and mop heads contaminated with uranium. You see, they clean up the plant with the rags and the mops, and then they have to store those, and then that leaks, and then they have to clean that up, and then the thing. In the past, Westinghouse would check the containers periodically. Staffers only looked inside from one end and could only see some of the drums stacked inside. Now, they will thoroughly inspect the inside of the containers to make sure similar leaks don't occur, according to the plant manager. Yeah. Inspect the whole drums. Why didn't I think of that? Now, ladies and gentlemen, you know that accused sexual predator and possible sexual trafficker, Jeffrey Epstein, financier as he's described, although according to the New York Times, he only really handled the uh, finances of one person, the CEO of the Limited. The, the Limited? The Limited, Tom. Um... And and uh, L Brands, the store, the, the chain that grew out of those stores, the company, the corporation that grew out of those stores, Leslie Wexner. Um, getting back to Epstein, so he's, you know, he's in jail. You know, the judge said he wouldn't get bail on his federal charges. But we all also know about that sweet deal he cut with prosecutors down in Florida when he was originally charged with some of the these types of offenses. That is to say, we know that he um, was allowed to leave jail and go to his office every day during his uh, sentence 
That's just the tip of the iceberg. This week, the Washington Post provided the rest. In 2008, a supervisor at the Palm Beach County Jail alerted staff members to the needs of an inmate serving an 18-month sentence for sex crimes involving a minor. Jeffrey Epstein, he wrote in a memo, was a first-time offender poorly versed in jail routine. His adjustment to incarceration will most likely be atypical. For the time being, he continued, I'm authorizing that his cell door be left unlocked and he be given liberal access to the attorney room where a TV will be installed. Unquote. During much of his sentence, Epstein was allowed to leave the county's minimum security jail for 12 hours a day, six days a week, for a work release program. Sheriff's deputies assigned to monitor the multimillionaire on these outings allowed him to enter his Palm Beach estate on at least nine occasions, toward the end of his sentence, at least once, unattended, and for four hours, according to the deputies. Epstein was soon transferred to the lower security Palm Beach County stockade. At the request of his attorneys, he was housed in the T-Dorm, an area reserved for inmates who must be separated from other inmates. In February the following year, he was moved again. Epstein will pay for the security staff to supervise him in this previously unstaffed housing unit, the infirmary of the stockade, according to an official from the sheriff's office. Participation in the work release program was a privilege granted to him at the discretion of the sheriff's office. The inmates on work release are not generally accompanied by deputies. Epstein was monitored by a deputy the entire time he was out, said a spokesman for the sheriff's office. Epstein paid $128,136 for the deputies to watch him. One deputy wrote that he sought clarification of his duties and was told his job was to provide security for Epstein. The deputies who monitored him were required to wear suits and to, quote, greet inmate Epstein upon his arrival, unquote, according to documents. The deputies often describe Epstein as the client or Mr. Epstein. Two deputies refer to him in internal reports as Jeffrey. For the work release program, Epstein traveled not with the sheriff's deputies assigned to him, but with a personal driver, a former mixed martial arts fighter from Russia named Igor Zinoviev. Epstein reported to a high-rise in West Palm Beach, where he worked at the Florida Science Foundation, a nonprofit group that state records show he founded shortly before his sentence began and dissolved shortly after his sentence was completed. Epstein's attorney incorporated the foundation as a nonprofit to support through grants organizations involved in the fields of science and research. The foundation does not appear to have filed any public records as a nonprofit with the Internal Revenue Service. The assistant U.S. attorney handling the case said the foundation Epstein said he was working at and his 12-hour-day job schedule, quote, were all created on the eve of Mr. Epstein's incarceration in order to provide him with a basis of seeking work release, unquote. 
In reports that logged his time in that program, deputies wrote that they, quote, worked the front desk, unquote, while Epstein met with, quote, guests. A log of the visitors, a record that is county property, was kept by Epstein's secretary in a safe in his office. The log has since been destroyed as part of the Sheriff's Department's records retention protocol. At times in the reports, the deputies appear to take direction from Epstein. In a report, one deputy wrote that he, quote, met with Epstein, I informed him I was here for the detail, at which time he explained the parameters, unquote. Another wrote, quote, I provided low-profile security for Mr. Epstein, ensuring that no unauthorized persons entered the office or approached him. I was in charge of properly checking in welcomed guests, unquote. Epstein's driver took him to outside appointments dozens of times during his work release. A deputy would follow or meet Epstein at his destination. At least 92 deputies applied to be with him while he was out of the stockade. They earned overtime pay for the jobs, ranging from $42 to $64 an hour as Epstein's permit deputies. Epstein's sentence was ultimately shortened by five months. He was given gain time because of his good behavior, just like any other inmate. After his sentence was completed, Epstein had friendly email exchanges with sheriff's officers. At one point, he emailed to let them know he was coming to town. He asked the captain how he was doing. I'm good, the captain replied. I hope you had a good holiday. If you need something when you fly in, you can always call. Have a good day. The story of Jeffrey in jail. Set the world on fire for you. Mm-hmm. Do do do. Mm-hmm. Do do do. I need you. I need you, yes indeed. Baby, 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 don't you know I need you? I need you, yes indeed. I'm gonna tell your mama and your papa too. I'm gonna spend my life with you. Do-do-do-do. Mm-hmm. 
This is the show. Tom, who are you and where are we? Hi, everybody. This is Tom Jones, Santa Monica, home of the homeless. Right, we got that straight. Ladies and gentlemen, following up on our story about the leaking tanks at the fuel rod factory. This just in, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is stepping up its inspections of such... No, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. Dainline Washington, Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff is recommending that the agency cut back on inspections at the country's nuclear reactors. It's a cost-cutting move. And you know who supports it? This is going to knock you for your... The nuclear power industry, it is denounced by opponents as a threat to public safety. Well, of course they'd say that. They're opponents. The recommendations include reducing the time and scope of some annual inspections at the nation's 90-plus nuclear power plants. Some other inspections would be cut from every two years to every three years. Nothing's going to happen in that other year. Some of the staff's recommendations would require a vote by the commission. The commission has a majority of members appointed or reappointed. My President Trump, he has urged agencies to reduce regulatory requirements. Yes, sir. The industry says the facilities are operating well and that the inspections are a financial burden. You know, they got the problem with nobody wants to buy the nuclear power because the gas is cheaper now. (coughs) Excuse me. There is considerable disagreement among the nuclear agency's staff on the cuts. But it says the inspection reduction, quotes improves efficiency while still helping to, helping to ensure reasonable assurance of adequate protection to the public. That's what we want, adequate protection, and not a bit more. Democratic lawmakers had criticized the NRC's deliberations, saying they'd failed to adequately inform the public of the changes under consideration. Well, I knew about it. Oh, no, I knew about it because I said it just now. An NRC spokesperson pointed to the staff arguments for the changes in the report. Trimming inspections, quote, will improve effectiveness because inspectors again will be focused on issues of greater safety significance. Unquote. Yeah, because they'll have had another year to go wrong. A nuclear power expert at the Union of Concerned Scientists faulted the reasoning of the staff that the good performance of the industry warranted cutting back. Quote, that completely ignores the cause and effect relationship between inspections and good performance, he said. Unquote. Him. Well, that's taken care of. Now, he's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He's at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The United States poured more than $50 million into drug treatment programs in Afghanistan between 2013 and 2018. It's unclear if the programs are making a difference. Well, that's $50 million well 
This is from Military Times reporting on the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction's latest report, the CIGAR. Afghanistan is one of the world's top producer of opioids outside of the Sackler family. Approximately 2.9 to 3.6 million people in Afghanistan use opium or heroin. So they grow it, they use it. It's kind of a circle. The National Institute on Drug Abuse estimates approximately 1.7 million Americans faced substance use disorders connected to prescription opioids in 2017. So given the fact that we got a much larger population than Afghanistan, there's a lot of them over there that's uh, flying high or low. Seagar said the State Department's Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs dished out at least 50 million and a half on 41 drug treatment programs implemented by, implemented by its partners, the Colombo Plan, and the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime during that five-year period. Despite the efforts, Seagar d- determined that... Uh, the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, the INL, was not measuring the project's performance. Well, you, you don't need to measure it that often. It's like nuclear fuel rod plants. You just And State Department guidelines and Government Accountability Office guidelines do suggest they measure the project's performance. Well, they're, they're living in a dream world is all I... Seagar found that because... INL has not evaluated the performance of its projects. It cannot determine the progress or impact its drug treatment project have had, says the Special Inspector General. Explaining that the Colombo Plan and the U.N. agency were responsible for measuring and providing information on the performances, and the State Department did not additionally or independently confirm that information was the problem, you see. Also, the State Department's agreement officers' representatives... Nobody told you you could be an agreement officer when you were in high school, did they? Didn't visit project locations. Due to the lack of oversight, well, they overlooked it. (laughs) Seagar determined that the agency lacks an understanding regarding the impact of its project in Afghanistan and was incapable of making informed decisions about its ongoing drug treatment projects. In other news of America's longest war, (laughs) President... President Trump this week said Pakistan is going to get involved in trying to uh, help broker an end to the war. He said he could. He had a plan to end the war in Afghanistan, America's longest war. He said he wasn't going to do it because it would get involved getting 10 million people killed. And he didn't want to do that. You see. There are talks going on in Doha, capital of Qatar, have been going on for quite a while. Uh, Zalme Ghalizad, who's been a U.S. representative ever since we uh, stepped into that sandy morass. You remember her? She was a playmate uh, in the early part of this century. Ghalizad has been uh, the U.S. representative at these talks. The Taliban has talked to him. The Taliban will not yet talk to the Afghan government, saying it's a puppet government. Of the government that Khalilzad represents, you see, they just want to cut out the middleman. I think is what they want to do. Um, according to the reports that have come out this week, the outlines of a plan for a roadmap to the end of the war involve U.S. troop withdrawal. I've mentioned this on a previous program. I think U.S. troop withdrawal and uh, Taliban involvement 
in the future, power sharing, I think they call it in Ireland, in uh, the future government. So that's how it looks from here. Let's tune in over there. From Afghanistan Public Radio, your source for pledge drives. From the abandoned American television truck in Kabul, the city where sleep never sleeps. I'm Mahmoud. <laughs> and I'm Hamid. We're Slick and Slack, the Screwed Brothers. Welcome to the midsummer edition of Karzai Talk. This week's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan Institute of the Humanities. If humans do it, we're into it. Well, my younger brother, mm-hmm. the bombings in our country continue, so I guess it's time for the morale to improve. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've just been spared from a quite horrible fate. Oh. Afghan Idol isn't coming back for another season? (laughs) No, my younger brother. President Trump said he won't go through with his plan to end our war because he said he doesn't want to kill 10 million people. Mm, Yes, that is a relief. However, he is looking forward to ending the tribal strife next door in Pakistan. Oh, why is that? Oh, it means killing only 5 million people. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is uh, Jimmy. Long time Taliban, first time caller. Uh, Jimmy, can I assume that that is not your real first name, but just your way of hiding your actual identity for fear of reprisal from your Taliban commanders? Uh, uh, No, I'm supposed to be asleep, and I don't want my mother to know I'm still up. Oh, it's always good to remember that even terrorists have mothers. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jimmy, how are you feeling uh, now about the talks uh, your brothers are holding in Well, uh, we have a a saying in the Taliban. Yes. What happens in Doha stays in Doha. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what doesn't stay in Doha. Uh, Yes. Celine Dion. (laughs) (laughs) But Jimmy, are you looking forward at long last to the end of this brutal and fruitless war? Well, it is brutal. But? But we do get pomegranates every day. That's <laughs> true. Yes. Really, I think my brothers and I are, are looking forward to resuming power that was snatched from us by the Americans uh, before I was born. Ah, now this is interesting. Oh, that the desire of the Taliban to dominate our country has been undimmed by decades of war? No. That we're younging up, this show's demographic. <laughs> <laughs> I told you long ago to stop tweeting and start Snapchatting. But if I can say something... Oh, please, don't let our incessant badinage derail your train of thought, Jimmy. <laughs> okay, whatever. We just keep hearing that one of the conditions for us resuming our seat at the table of domination is to allow our women to keep going to schools. We hear that, too, and... Uh, I'm sure you want to know why. No, I understand that part. Then... What are these schools they speak of? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a true son of the desert. Uh-huh. Thanks for the call. So, his mother knows he's fighting with the Taliban. But doesn't think he stays up late? 
<laughs> Every family has its secret. My brother, you're not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was supposed to be funny. <laughs> Hello, you're Ron Karzato. Hello, this is Bobby Khan, long-time cousin of the new Pakistani Prime Minister. First-time caller, because uh, it's the first time I knew this show existed. Well, our Pakistani audience is very small. In uh, fact, I think we're talking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, I assume that's not your real first name, but just your way of protecting your newly powerful relative. Uh, no, it is my real first name. My dad loved the Kennedys. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, do you think from your privileged position of cousinhood that uh, Pakistan will now start to cooperate in the very delicate Doha peace Well, you know, my cousin is a man of peace. Mm. He could have been a great rugby player. Mm -hmm. He was a great cricketer instead. Yes. Mm. If they had netball for men, he would have done that. But, but, but wouldn't it mean abandoning your country's support for the Taliban? Oh, no, I don't think so at all. If the Taliban was part of the new government next door, uh, yours, mm -hmm. it would mean we would have a seat at your table, so to speak, which would uh, mean... Which would mean every day we'd have to count the silverware. <laughs> oh, oh, but that would mean abandoning the sort of double game your country has always played, wouldn't it? Oh, not necessarily. You know, Islamic State is now operating in your country. Oh, yes, they took responsibility for two of last week's bombings. So our intelligence people have just opened up some lines of communication to them. As, as we say, you, you never want all your eggs in the same chicken. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I called... Oh, I knew we'd get to it eventually. <laughs> our, our population is seven or eight times yours. Mm. So if Trump tried to win the war here... You'd be glad you had the news. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. <laughs> we had help today from the Afghan Poppy Foundation. Opium, it's not just for breakfast anymore. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. Join us next time for another unrerunnable edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio.
This is Le Show, and we're getting more and more indications of what uh, Shoshana Zuboff, a guest on this program last spring, described as surveillance capitalism. Amazon's home security company, Ring, hello, has enlisted local police departments around the country to advertise its surveillance cameras in exchange for free Ring products. <laughs> that's not bribery, that's... And a portal that allows police to request footage from these cameras without the use of a warrant. This is uh, according to a secret agreement obtained by Motherboard, a uh, website that follows this stuff. The agreement also requires police to keep the terms of this program confidential. Dozens of police departments around the country have partnered with Ring. Until now, the exact terms of these partnerships have remained unknown. A signed memorandum of understanding between Ring and the Police Department of Lakeland, Florida, emails obtained via public records request, support it, show that Ring is using local police as a de facto advertising firm. Police are contractually required to, quote, engage the Lakeland community with outreach efforts on the platform to encourage adoption of the platform and app, unquote, i.e., Ring. In order to part with the Ring, police departments must also assign officers to Ring-specific roles that include a press coordinator, a social media manager, and a community relations coordinator. That's on the public dime. Ring is owned by Amazon. Ring donated 15 free doorbell surveillance cameras to the Lakeland Police Department and created a program to encourage people to download its neighborhood watch app. Police already have access to publicly funded street cameras and investigative tools, but Ring cameras are proliferating in the private sphere with close to, sphere with close to zero oversight. Amazon is convincing people to self-surveil through aggressive fear-based marketing, according to Vice, aided by de facto police endorsements and free ring camera giveaways. Consumers are opting into self-surveillance. The result of ring police partnerships, says Vice, is a self-perpetuating surveillance network. The Memorandum of Understanding is pitched as a solution to the Lakeland Police Department to help reduce crime and assist with investigations in your community. The document includes an Amazon legal watermark, and it gives Lakeland Police access to Ring's Law Enforcement Neighborhood Portal, an interactive map that shows police all of the active Ring doorbell cameras in town. But wait, that's not all. At least five police agencies in San Diego County are partnering with Ring to gain access to that growing network of residential and business cameras. This is from Voice of San Diego. The program is meant to reduce crime. Isn't everything? It benefits not only law enforcement, but one of the world's largest corporations, raising questions about the proper relationship between tech and police in the era of smart technology. The Chula Vista Police Department became the latest to sign that agreement with Ring a couple months ago after a company salesman pursued city officials. Emails obtained by the Voice of San Diego show that Sergeant Frank Giammi signaled strong support for the device's 
last year as part of the department's long-term goal to create a real-time crime center. One of the ways to do that, he explained, would be to leverage civilian surveillance cameras in the city to aid us in solving crime and learning about crime patterns, unquote. Of course, in the analog world, police departments had to get a search warrant to get the kind of information they're now getting through that partnership with Ring. And now, the Apologies of the Week. From the What Took You So Long Department, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak apologized this week for the killing of 13 Arab protesters by Israeli police way back in 2000. His statements on Israeli public radio, Please Give, addressed a point of friction between him and Israel's Arab minority. The comments were made as Barak tries to make a political comeback. Well, that's totally coincidental. It appears to largely hinge, according to EgyptIndependent.com, on uniting liberal parties, some of whom depend on <laughs> Arab voters. Quote, there's no place for protesters to be killed by their country's security forces, said Barack. A total of 13 were killed, along with a, a Jewish-Israeli civilian who was killed by stones thrown at his car. Deadline Chicago, Chicago police issued an apology one day after a Chicago Tribune story revealed the department has compiled profiles on citizens who spoke at public meetings of the city's police disciplinary panel since about 2013. Didn't need ring back then. Practice drew outrage from Chicago police board members, past police board speakers, the ACLU, and Mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, she said she'd ordered an immediate stop to the background checks and that the police department owed the public an apology. Last Wednesday, the police department did issue a brief statement reaffirming its commitment to the right of individuals to privacy and apologizing, quote, for any mistrust this practice may have caused. Documents obtained by the Chicago Tribune, which is still publishing, that's big news, show that the police department gathered details on nearly 60 people in advance of their speaking at monthly meetings of the police board. Police spokesman said the background checks go back to at least 2013. They appear to be extensive with police searching at least one internal department database to determine if speakers have arrest records or warrants outstanding, investigative alerts issued for them by the department, and even if they're missing persons. They also searched comments that speakers had previously made on YouTube or on their Facebook and Twitter accounts. The mayor condemned the practice as just stupid, unquote. She had chaired the police board before her run for mayor. Deadline San Leandro, California, a woman from Castro Valley, says she was racially profiled and wrongly accused of shoplifting at Kohl's in San Leandro. She recorded the incident on her phone, did Yolanda Montoya, and posted it to Facebook. I couldn't believe it said Montoya, who's a nurse and mother of four. I'm like, obviously I didn't steal anything. Where could they have thought I stole something? And I'm like, oh, because I took clothes into the fitting room because I have a diaper bag because I look a mess and I look like I might need to steal, unquote. (laughs) 
the spokesman for Kohl's, said thank you for contacting Kohl's. Kohl's prides itself on its customer service and creating a welcoming experience. We take allegations of this nature very seriously. We have apologized to the customer directly for her poor experience and in, in frequent dialogue with her, working towards a resolution. Montoya said, that's not enough. She wants the men to be held accountable. What country does she think she's living in? Accountable. This is the land of impunity. A driver delivering packages for Amazon pooped in a customer's garden in the United Kingdom. Video was posted to Facebook, has since been removed. He felt the need to hop over the, our fence and do a poo in our garden and bag up the tissue and throw them in the hedge and then hop back over the fence and walks off, said the woman who posted the video. We have evidence of who you are and your vehicle. Amazon, you need to sort this out immediately. An Amazon representative told Business Insider the company reached out to the customer. Too much reaching out, ladies and gentlemen, just a personal, and apologized for the incident. We have very high standards for our delivery service providers and how they serve customers. We're taking this matter seriously and have reached out to the customer to apologize for the experience. Unquote. Too much experience going on these days. Bad experience. Poor experience. We want a better experience. Amazon delivery drivers have told Business Insider that some drivers have used buckets or bottles to relieve themselves in their trucks because of their busy schedules. Unquote. Something to think about the next time you order a next-day delivery. The Gateway School Board in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, condemned a board member's actions during a special meeting this week. One condemned board member Valerie Warning's, quote, interference and intermeddling with the day-to-day -day operations of the school district. That's right. A school board used the word intermeddling. Warning. Apologized for embarrassing the school district in a tearful response to the condemnation and eventually excused herself from the meeting. Went to uh, intercompose herself. The Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority has apologized after passengers aboard a commuter rail train heading to Providence, Rhode Island, were forced to evacuate after the vehicle caught fire this week. We would like to apologize for the challenging commute you experienced tonight said the MBTA. Do you know what Twitch is? It's a uh, platform for gamers to stream with each other. And one of them, Alinity, has apologized for throwing her cat. She's been the subject of rife criticism after throwing one of her cats over her chair out of frustration during a session. A clip of it went viral. PETA is after her, as well as the SPCA. Her behavior extends past playing hot potato uh, with her pet feline. She's also given the thing vodka as well and streamed that. Al alcohol is poisonous to cats in small amounts and deadly in large amounts. She's taken to Twitter to apologize, saying she simply dropped the animal, and the vodka thing was over a year ago. She does acknowledge wrongdoing. My animals are well-loved and live in a warm and caring home, she says. 
She invites the SBCA to come check on her cats. And Ms. Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar's face is contorted into an attitude-filled pout. She appears to be toning a gun. Below her are doctored images of three fellow Democratic congresswomen. Political jihad is their game, says the poster, calling them the stars of the jihad game. The meme appeared on the Facebook page of the Illinois Republican County Chairman's Association. Drew widespread backlash from top state leaders in both parties. Uh, the association's president, Mark Shaw, apologized, announced the post had been taken down. I condemn this unauthorized posting, and it has been deleted. I am sorry if anyone who saw the image was offended by the contents. The if apologies of the weaker copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this week, New Orleans lost another iconic figure in its music culture. Art Neville, who helped form two of New Orleans' most well-known and well-loved musical groups, the Meters and the Neville Brothers, passed away. We all miss him. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week on the radio, same time on your audio device of choice at your time of choice. And it'll be just like another Art Neville coming along if you agree to join with us then. All right. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this program your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Imagine that. And the playlist of the music heard here on all at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shear. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs> <laughs>